if you are a mom or a grandma or a stepmom, would you please continue to stand up? <laughs> we, as a community here at FOF, would love to pray for you this morning and thank you and, uh, and just pray God's blessings upon you and uh, just all of you, God's blessings to you. Let's pray. God, thank you for our moms. Thank you for these, these women that you have sent into our lives who, who have taken these roles of loving us often unconditionally, of putting up with us when, when no human being should, uh, of, of pouring their, their souls and their lives into the being of who we are, who, who never let go. And despite the fact that that drives us nuts sometimes, knowing that there's someone in this world that cares for us that much. God, thank you for these women. Bless them. And continue to do things in them that are mighty and grand in your kingdom. God, we pray. Amen. Thank you. One more time. One more time. Let's give him a hand, all right? I am so excited about this series that we're doing today. Here's what we get to do for two weeks. Any question that you have... Any question, no matter how far out there, how small, how big, how crazy, how outlandish, how heretical, any question that you have about God, life, religion, theology, the Bible, church, specifically fellowship of faith, we are going to invite you in just a moment to text your questions in, no matter what they might be. And I am going to do my best right here to address them as openly and honestly I can on the spot. Why are we doing it? Growing up, I was the kind of guy that had so many kinds of questions. And I thought I was alone. I thought other people don't ask questions like this. Other people don't seem to be concerned or worrying about the same things I'm worrying about. And I thought I was just kind of weird that way. And the older I got, the more I discovered that, that so many other people are walking around with these same kind of philosophical and theological questions and don't feel like they have a place to channel them. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've been a believer for like 43 years. You've been doing the church thing every week. Your family looks at you as some kind of pillar. But deep inside, I bet there's a question. And I bet there's a question that, that in your mind you think is simple that you think is embarrassing to ask because you think that someone like you should know the answer to it by now. And so you keep it kind of buried down there. You know what I mean? Because if you were to ask it, it might reveal that you're not quite the super Christian that people have lifted you up to be. And what today is about is asking that question. Or maybe you're brand new here. You know, you know maybe you're new to this whole, whole Jesus thing. You're new to the church thing. Maybe you got dragged along by a spouse today or something like that. And, and maybe you don't believe this to begin with. And, and you've heard people talk about it, but you've got some really serious questions and some serious kind of issues that have kept you from maybe taking a step into what this Christian thing is all about. And you don't feel like there's ever been a church that you could ask it and get an open and honest answer that respects the question to begin with. That's what we're about here today. Maybe you've got a question and it just feels like it's wrong to ask. It's wrong to ask because, you know, if I had more faith, I wouldn't ask a question like that. Or maybe you're questioning something that's so foundational and fundamental to what Christianity is about. And you're afraid that if you ask it, someone's going to judge you. 
You're afraid that if you ask it, it somehow indicates that you don't really believe and love God as much as you claim to. Ask. No, none of that. Today is the day to ask it. Maybe it's one of these big questions out here that's complex. It's like, I have one question in 27 parts. You know, kind of one of those things going on. And maybe it's one of those that we need to hit today. Or maybe it's one of the best questions I ever heard. It was a guy who was new to the Christian faith. We were sitting there doing like this introductory Bible Bible study. And he goes, now that Exodus guy, what did he do? Maybe your question is something like that today. Whatever it happens to be, today is a day that we explicitly invite you to ask him. And my hope is that through this next 30 minutes or so together, I'm able to breathe some insight into it, some direction into it, sometimes answers, and sometimes more questions to keep on going. I shared something with you last week. Ben, slide, please. It's something that's very important to us as a church here at FOF. Just invite you to read it. And as you read it, I just want to invite you to let it inform an openness on your part to ask whatever question you may be struggling with or thinking about today. Now, here's how you do it. You got your phone? If you have a phone or a tablet, pull it out and raise that sucker up right now. All right? Pull it out and raise it up right now. Slide, please. I want you to text your questions in to 1-815-314-0363. Start texting them now. That's 3140-FOF. And I am going to get them right here. I am going to get them anonymously. And I am going to answer your questions here on the spot. Now, as you start texting, I need to kind of set up with one question that we already had earlier in the week. It was one of our discipleship groups here. I believe it was our Christianity 201 class. And someone asked the question, okay, if you look at a church calendar, there's a day we just had on Thursday, and it's called Ascension Day. What is Ascension, and why do we kind of just gloss over it at the church at large. I mean, let's face it, who, who here like got out the tree or the stockings and had an Ascension Day party, right? No one, right? Okay, so, so how come, and, and if it, it, what is it, if it's a big deal, why do we gloss over it? So what is Ascension Day? After Jesus died on Good Friday and rose from the dead three days later on Easter Sunday, he spent 40 days on earth with his disciples. Now remember that when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't, it was like some ghost, right? It, he, he, he actually, his body came back. So he physically spent 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples. And after 40 days, he was physically, literally kind of just taken up into heaven. He ascended into heaven. Now, the theological importance of what's going on here is that when Jesus died and rose again, this was like the vanguard assault on the kingdom of hell. This was the, 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 the victory smash to the kingdom of Satan. And Ascension Day is Jesus now taking his throne to reign over his kingdom. Does that make sense? So what you got to think is Lion King here today, all right? Good Friday and Easter Sunday is when Simba takes Scar down, 
All right? This is like the defeat of the enemy. And Ascension Day is when the music starts to play and the sunlight comes through and you see Simba going up on Pride Rock and he gives that roar. That is Ascension Day. Does that make sense? All right. Now, we tend to gloss Ascension Day over and I think we need to repent of this as a congregation here today. So here's what I want you to do. Let's give Ascension Day its due. I want you to stand up And when I count to three, I want you to cheer your guts out for Ascension Day. I want you to scream. I want you to hoop. I want you to holler. I want you to jump off chairs. I want to see stage diving, okay? Because because Simba has taken the throne, and this is good stuff, all right? I mean, Cubs have won the World Series level of cheering here this morning. Are you with me? No, 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 no wimps on this. You can't sit there. I count three and you go, oh, is the guy next to me going to do it? No, no, no. You've got to own this, all right? So let's stand up. And in honor of Ascension Day and what it stands for and the Christ who reigns on the throne, let's cheer our guts out in three, two. A wave actually broke out in this section right here among 15 people. All right, guys, you can take a seat. All right, let's see what you got. Now, between services, I got an old school text. All right, so I'm going to start with this text question right here. Here it is. Can I become an FOF member while not agreeing with every point of Lutheran doctrine? Absolutely. Absolutely. Fellowship of Faith's goal is not to make a good Lutheran out of you. We are Christians who happen to be Lutherans. We are Jesus followers who happen to believe that that the people of the Lutheran tradition have brought degrees of clarity to various biblical teaching. We do not believe those Lutherans are infallible. We do not believe that they are the basis for our faith. Do you want to connect here and belong? Are you a follower of Christ? Connect here and belong. You can be a member without having to check every little thing. Great question. All right, let's see which ones have come in in the... uh, Newer technological fashion, shall we say. Ooh, glad of them. All right. Here we go. Uh, Give me a sec. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not looking to skate it, but I'd like, that is the identically worded question at 9 o'clock. I think that was an old one. Um, Here's a great question. How do I trust God again? How do I trust God again? It implies that whoever was here texting it in, that there was a time that you chose to put your faith in God, and and I'm just going to take a guess here. Something didn't deliver. He disappointed you. He let you down. You were looking for him and he felt absent. You thought there was a promise there that was extended and it didn't seem to deliver. And I just want to start by saying that you're not alone this morning. The process of faith is often a process of varying degrees of wavering of faith, trusting God and fearing God, trusting God and falling out of faith. 
How do I trust God again? What I find it involves is risk and vulnerability. And I don't know your situation, but I can take a guess that that's probably one of the hardest things to do. Because when we make ourselves vulnerable and we're willing to risk and we get hurt, it scares us, doesn't it, from doing it again? But what God invites you to do is to say, even when I feel absent, even when it doesn't play out the way you think it should play out, you can trust me, and that takes faith, that takes a leap, and that takes a willingness to get hurt. If there's something specific that you want to talk about on that, I want to invite you to come talk to me after the service, and we'll maybe work through the individual issue that is there. But to be willing to open your heart again after it has been damaged can be so hard. But the benefit of doing so, I believe, so outweighs the alternative. Great question. I'm trying to figure this one out, so I'm going to go to the second. My brother asked why the Bible shows women continually degraded, enslaved, and found worthless by fellow man. He felt if the Bible was real and God loves us equally, there's a contradiction. I didn't know how to answer. Uh, In the spirit of being forthright and honest and for time, understand I'll go with these with some brevity, I would encourage you to say I don't think that your brother's actually ever read the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, what you see is a continual elevation of women and a respect for the dignity of women. And so often the debates about women revolve around two or three very controversial passages in the Bible. And it's so easy to fixate on one sentence at the expense of 66 books. So the first question is, are are, are you reading in its totality? The the second point to make is, is, is nothing is further from the truth. Both Old and New Testament are chock full of rights for women, the equality of women. Genesis 1 says that women are made equally in the image of God. Paul will write, there is no difference, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Historically, it's fascinating that, that Christianity took off like wildfire among women because it was so revolutionary for the equality and the dignity of women in a day and age when they were treated like property or so oppressed. So I would encourage you to read that with new eyes. And if there's a specific passage that you have interest on, text it in and I'll hit it. But my encouragement to you would be to go back to your brother and show them the overwhelming amount of evidence on the other side and actually ask them, what part of the Bible actually says that? Because 10 bucks says to me they heard it from somewhere and didn't actually come up with that conclusion themselves. Next question. Everyone has a belief, and no belief makes up more than 30% of the world. Does that mean 70% of the world is wrong? Um, Yeah, possibly. There are times in human history when 99% of the world is wrong. And I think any examination of human history reveals that time and again. What makes something true is not majority belief. And the call of Christianity throughout the ages has often been a minority movement. A minority movement of saying, 
even when a country is so-called Christianized, what is a remnant belief really about? And so I wouldn't let that scare you. I wouldn't let that scare you at all. Next question. If Christianity is for everyone, including the broken, why is brokenness so inappropriate to talk about? When is it really safe to be real in our broken parts? Ben, flip back one one slide again. And I just want to encourage you with these words one more time. I don't think brokenness is inappropriate to talk about despite the fact that some people would lead you to believe that. I don't think that brokenness is inappropriate to talk about in church, despite the fact that some churches would lead you to believe that. When I see Jesus, I see someone who embraces life in all its raw and dark realities, with honesty and with love. Dealing with brokenness is not about denying it. Dealing with brokenness is about going, this is what it is. I can't speak for other places, but I can tell you here, your brokenness is absolutely appropriate to talk about. And when is it really safe? That's tough. Because if you're broken, you know that people judge. Believers and non-believers alike. And you'll have to determine in that context who you can trust and who you can't. But from a church, I encourage you, embrace it. Because keeping it down deep where no one knows about, it just kind of stays broken. Where do the dinosaurs fit in with Adam and Eve? Okay. Um, There's two prevailing theories on this. Some say that when you look at the record of Genesis, what you're getting is a poem. You're getting a, a, a poem that's describing not so much a literal play out of 24-hour days. And they would argue that when animals are created before people on the fifth day rather than the latter sixth day or something like that, that that actually kind of assumes thousands or millions of years of time. But there's other people that say, no, 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 I, I think it's something different. I think, I think the, the record of Genesis should be taken a bit more literally, and where they would see dinosaurs fitting in with Adam and Eve is kind of like, well, right there. They would see dinosaurs as existing, coexisting with humanity. To which, of course, the immediate objection is then what do you do with archaeological evidence? To which they would then answer, well, we think the archaeological evidence has been misinterpreted. If you want to read a fascinating passage, um, go to Job chapter 40. And 41, he gives a description of a beast that the stupidest footnote of all time in your Bible will say is probably an alligator or an elephant or something like that. Just read the description sometimes on your own and you tell me what you think it is. Um, Good question. Next one. Okay, wow, that was like 12 right here. Okay. Um, Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Probably not. (laughs) Um, what was the meaning of sackcloth and ashes in the Bible? It's a sign of repentance. If we were to write in our own terminology that someone wore black, okay, we're either thinking they're goth or we're thinking that there's mourning going on, right? 
Sackcloth and ashes was a metaphor of the day to describe what people would do in a time of mourning. And so when it says to repent with sackcloth and ashes, it means to do it with brokenness, with a contrite heart, with a vulnerability to God. Next question. What is the one unforgivable sin? No such thing. And I know what you're thinking. You're you're like quoting Mark 3 on me. And this is what it says. Um, There's these religious leaders, and they're coming up to Jesus. And it's always the religious leaders that are getting the bad rap, right? They come up to Jesus, and uh, they're doubting him. They're questioning him. They're testing him. And Jesus has just done some amazing miracles. And they go, you know, because we so outright reject Jesus, that can't be of God, even though before our face it is of God. He's doing that by the power of the devil. Jesus turns around. You can read this in Mark 3, Matthew 12. It's all over the place um, in the Gospels. Every blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Not in this age or in the age to come. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean if, if you like, use a swear word and say the Holy Spirit after it that you're, you're going to hell or something like that? No. You've got to understand what the Holy Spirit's about. There is this myth in America today that we are moral neutral. That, that we are born moral neutral with the free ability to make a choice for or against God. The teaching of the New Testament seems to imply that by nature all of us are resistant against God. Left to our own devices, each and every one of us here will reject God, flee from God, spite God, and do whatever we can to get away from God because, well, we're sinners. That's what the term kind of means. And what the Christian thinking is all about is that it's the Holy Spirit. God sends his spirit into us to to kind of work us over, soften our hearts, churn in us and convict us and lead us and yearn us, and that without him, we can never choose God on our own. I don't care if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. They all agree on this, all right? And so the idea is that if you reject God's work on your heart, you've basically cut off the pipeline from which God comes to you. So in a way, the unforgivable sin becomes rejection, but not rejection like a one time, but hardening the heart against God. You can follow up with more if there's more questions on that. Um, I have a collection of questions here that I'm going to try to take as a group. And let me just share a few and then wrap them all up. How can, how can being gay be wrong if God made you that way? It isn't a choice. Um, what is the LCMS, our, our, our denominational body, stance on same-sex marriage? Where does FOF stand when it comes to gay marriage? Would you ever officiate one? What if the church stands on women who choose to... Okay, that's something different. Okay, so let, let's deal with the, 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 the homosexual topic, the gay topic, the gay marriage topic. Jesus was once asked, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And what people wanted was a yes or no answer from Jesus. And they wanted a yes or no answer for Jesus for one reason. Not because they wanted clarity. They asked it because they wanted to pigeonhole him. And by pigeonholing him, they wanted to judge him. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going on with your question here today. But unfortunately, that seems to be where the debate always falls to. What Jesus did is he breathed into questions like this by always showing a third or different 
way. So let me just kind of talk about it. God made all people. God loves all people. God desires all people to be in relationship with himself, and there is no one in this universe too far from God. Each of us deals with sin. Each of us has corruptions, perversions, distortions. Each of us has sin that causes us to do other things. For some, it manifests itself as greed. For some, it's fierce independence. For others, it's power. For others, it's violence. For others, it's lack of self-control. And for others, it's sexuality. And for those in sexuality, some of it is in the heterosexual realm. And some of it is in the homosexual realm. All of us, gay or straight, are sinners. And to look at our issues and say, I'm only culpable if I choose it, misses what sin is all about. Would you go up to someone who's very violent by nature? and say, well, you know, God made you violent, so it's okay if you beat your wife. We wouldn't go there, would we? I want to encourage you to think about the gay question in the same way. Is homosexuality a choice or is it an inclination? Without being insensitive, who cares? And it matters to you, and I don't want to say that to you personally, but when it comes to the question of whether it's right or wrong, that's not where the determining factor rests. The Bible says that God made sex and he made it to be something amazing. And with all of God's good gifts, we have ways of screwing them up, don't we? Some because it feels so right. Some because it's just the way we're wired. Some because of things that have happened to us in our life. And sometimes we just hunger for those things, but there are times when God says, that isn't my way. And what I believe in in where our church stands is that homosexuality is a sin. And that if you're struggling with it here today or know someone who is, God loves you. And God wants a relationship with you. And uh, it doesn't make you any better or worse than any other sinner sitting here. Now to the gay marriage question, let me kind of take the Jesus third way approach. Regardless of what our nation should declare, God does not give a rip. God has never been about setting up governments. God has never been about political power. God has never been about policy, though I do think there is a place for believers to affect policy. If gay marriage is illegal, God doesn't want gay people getting married because he doesn't want people having homosexual sex. And if homosexual marriage becomes legal, God still doesn't want people having homosexual sex. So the political position is almost immaterial in my mind compared to what I think the biblical answer to is it is overall. Fantastic question. What is considered... Sexual immorality. Well, there's a couple of different ways you can approach it. Here's the short answer. Anything sexually outside the bounds of what God prescribed good. That really helped, didn't it? You know, maybe one of the places to go is back to the Old Testament Levitical law and see how it described sexual immorality. And if you're you're kind of like a bullet point kind of guy, 
that may work for you. But let me phrase it this way. God invented sex. He invented it to be something to bring a man and a woman together in a lifelong commitment. He invented it to be something that bonds them together physically, emotionally, spiritually. He meant it to be enjoyed. He meant it to be celebrated. He meant it to be something that brought dignity and blessing to the other, never degradation. To honor it in that way is sexual morality. To defy that in any way is sexual immorality. And if you have a specific question, follow up, and I'll address it from there. Hi, what up? Hi. My biggest fear is when I die, even in heaven I will no longer feel or see my family and enjoy their life. Is there any reassurance of worldly joy after life? Yes. Absolutely. Excuse me. Yes. The Bible drips with a hope for resurrection. I want to reframe this a bit. Heaven is not the goal. Resurrection is. Which means that the day is going to come when our bodies are going to be raised. And that's what goes on into eternity. And the best way that I could sum it up is that the way that Bible describes it is like Eden. So imagine the Garden of Eden, and that's what God promises for eternity, a place where there is no more mourning or fear or crying or suffering or pain, where God's created order is in harmony with him and with each other, where there is such things as as families and community and friendship and togetherness, where it's real and alive and in everything that God intended. Yes, absolutely yes. The fear may be there. Trust God despite the fear. This word to use is certain and sure on that, that, on that point. Next question. If you accepted Jesus as your Savior and lead a life for him for many years and then later decide Jesus was just a man and doubt God is the omniscient being he is, um, and then I think this, this string continues, can someone lose their salvation? Are you following the the, the question strain here? Basically, can someone lose their salvation? There is two schools of thought in Christianity. Some will say yes. Some will say no. Some will say that once you're saved, you are always saved, which sounds really good, but it comes with its own baggage, and I'll get to that in a minute. And others will say, no, it is possible to fall away from faith. I can walk you through the debates if you're interested, but for brevity, let me just say this. I personally believe that someone can lose their salvation, that someone can fall away from faith. And I likewise believe that someone can fall away and then come back in. I don't think that it happens flippantly. I don't think that it happens based on one-time decisions in life. I think it happens gradually over time. Uh, But I personally believe that's what the Bible teaches. I understand where the other position comes from, but... I'll put my chips in there, and you can follow up if you'd like. Next question. Why do things that are wrong feel so good? Couldn't God just make it horrible? (laughs) 
Man, I am so with you. <laughs> I am so with you. <laughs> That's the point, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it would just, it would be wonderful if good things felt good and bad things felt bad. But this is what sin and temptation is. See, see, the devil is not so much a scary fanged monster that's looking to devour you in the night as he is a seductor. The Bible says that the angel appears as an angel of light. It looks really good. And that's what makes it so hard. Because you know what evil basically is? It's good things slightly askew. Evil does not exist as its own entity. Evil begins by taking something that is wonderful and beautiful and good and distorting it and using it for pain. Think about alcohol. What a wonderful thing God has made. And yet we see the way that, that, that people abuse it and destroy themselves and others by it, right? It looks so good because God made it good. But then we just as a way of people have a way of twisting. You get the idea. All right. What is the difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism? Calvinism starts with a C. I still want to leave it there. Okay, I'll just... I'll. Tulip. Say tulip. Okay, it is an acronym. It is what Calvinism is based on. It's five primary doctrines. T stands for total depravity, okay? U stands for unconditional election, okay? L stands for limited atonement, okay? I've lost you by this point, haven't I? And here's why it's important. What this means is that in the Calvinist mindset, God is sovereign, and so that everything that happens on earth, on earth happens because of God's foreordained sovereign decision, particularly in the realm of salvation. In an effort to so guard grace and grace alone, the Calvinist position is to take all human culpability and responsibility out of the salvation equation. Because if you have to do something, suddenly you're contributing a work. And many people have turned faith into a work, right? So Calvinism will say this, God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned. Boom. Hope you got a good roll of the dice kind of how it goes. Now, I say it kind of flippantly, but, but, but that is the essence of what Calvinism is about. And therefore, if God chose you, you, you can't fall away. You're saved forever. Once saved, always saved is a Calvinist idea. What is the primary difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism in this regard? Because this is basically the issue. Lutheranism is a weird hybrid. They'll say you're saved because God chose you before the foundation of the world. But if you go to hell, it's your own damn fault. On one hand, Lutheranism tries to guard this idea that you're saved because God chose you, God claimed you, God put his stake in you, and the reason why they emphasize that is, well, the Bible does, but also because it takes out an emotional quotient of going, did I really surrender? Do I really believe? Do I have enough faith? Have you ever doubted those things? Have you ever asked those questions? And it's kind of Luther's way of running to go, wait, when you're in that moment, go, God chose me. Don't worry about the strength of my faith. Worry about the grip of God. And yet on the other hand, going, God wants all people to be saved. God chooses no one to be damned. So you have the freedom to reject God. 
to run from God, to refuse God. Say, I want nothing to do with you and go your own way. If Arminius and Calvin were to have a baby, well, there you go. Do Lutherans believe in predestination as a follow-up? Yes, but they also believe in free will. Is it wrong to never get married, even if you're not a nun, monk, priest? Uh, No, it's not wrong to get married. It is fine to not be married. Uh, It's even good. Uh, In fact, um, Paul will even say a spiritual gift is celibacy, which again, I just have to say, it's the gift that no high school guy ever wanted. Um, Paul was single. Jesus was single. Your spirituality does not depend on the ring on your finger. Okay? Um, Are Mormons real Christians? Some are. And the reason I answer it that way is because I don't really care what denomination label you slap on yourself. Some Lutherans aren't real Christians. It's not your affiliation that determines your salvation. There are people in Mormon churches, which I do not believe hold on to the core foundational truths of what Christianity is about, that nonetheless have very real relationships with Christ. And there are people in the most doctrinally correct churches in this world that have no idea about what a living relationship with Christ is. So that's kind of a way of going, don't don't judge the person by their cover, okay? And yet, when you talk Mormon official teaching, is it real Christian? It gets some of it right, but not the foundations, all right? And uh, one more on this one. Does the Lutheran church believe in the age of accountability? You know what that is, age of accountability? It's the idea that, that God does not hold certain people based on age accountable for their sins until an age of, of when they kind of like come to age or something. And, and in different churches, we'll set that age at different ways, but, but I'll just kind of cut to it. Um, no, we don't believe in an age of accountability. Um, I, I think the Bible's pretty clear. Um, we're all born sinners and we all need the grace of God. Um, period. And salvation comes by faith, by grace, through faith. To which you go, then what's faith? Because if you define faith as a rational idea, as you define faith as a a deliberate decision and a conscious choice based on on weighing certain facts, then it starts to get really weird, doesn't it? I just want to encourage you that the question might go deeper than your question and to maybe challenge your notions of what faith might actually be. I brought this up last week if you were here. Can an infant trust his mother? despite the fact that he doesn't know his mother's name, any reason why he should trust his mother or why he's making that decision in the first place. Is faith the same way? Let me do a couple more questions here and then we're going to have to land this because of time. Who was the first one to die? I don't really know. I'm going to guess Abel. Um, if you go back to Genesis and you have Adam and Eve and they have some kids and there's Cain and Abel and, and, and Cain kills Abel, uh, I'm going to guess Abel. Who was first on earth? Adam. Um, how can I help my daughter's uh, preteen friends to be better people? Um, to help teach them 
true friendship. Oh, geez, man. (laughs) To speak in very general terms, may I encourage you to be the primary influencer, to bring them into your world instead of relegating your kids completely into their world. May I encourage you to stand by what you believe, to speak the truth in love, to show the things that you want to see modeled, and when you see things going astray, to correct them in gentle and yet direct kind of ways. I encourage you to talk to your daughter about it, one-to-one. Really have those good conversations. You want to know what a great one is? Get in the car and go for a two-hour ride. They're stuck with you. And the conversations that will come, hey, you know, there's this great diner in Iowa I've been wanting to hit. You know, let's, you know, one of those kinds of things. I just encourage you to that. Guys, I'm looking at the clock. I've got about 30 more questions here easily. And and we're just out of time. The good news is it doesn't end today. Next week, we're going to pick up. We're not erasing these. Invite you to come back. We'll hit more of these questions that you guys are wrestling through and thinking about and asking. I want to encourage you to invite your friends. Invite your family members. Invite those people in your life that are asking the tough and good and deep and simple questions. And, uh, and may, God, may God breathe into you. Because questioning is not the sign of an absence of faith. Questioning is the sign of a growing faith. So let's rise. And I just, uh, band, why don't you come forward? And, and, and folks, I just want to invite you to pray with me today, all right? Father, we had uh, so many good questions here this morning. I want to thank you for these people who, who, who dared to ask. People who put themselves on the line. People who are willing to put it forward. And God, I pray that, that, that somehow through, through this discussion we had, that you breathe into all of us with, with new insights. God, that you raise more questions. Because God, what I've discovered is every time I find something out about you and it answers one, it raises 10 more in return. Spur those in us. And God, help us to be a community where we could speak openly and honestly with each other, even if we disagree where we could talk about the deep things and we can do it because we love each other. We don't have to hide from each other or tell each other what we think we want to hear. We can talk about it in real and open and honest ways and, and, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, sharpen each other, grow together. And to know, God, that no matter what our doubts, no matter what our questions, no matter what our issues, you love us for who we are. God, we pray. Amen.